welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Today we'll be taking a look at the different ways of telling or retelling a story. Stories are our life here at Penguin. Funny stories, quirky stories, romantic stories, scary stories, well, you get the picture. But if you think about it, stories are integral to everyone's lives. Think about how many stories you consume a day through books, films, TV shows, plays, songs, lots. We always love a brand new, unique story. But what about the old ones or the reimagined classics? Julia Donaldson, the 2011-2013 Children's Laureate, has done just that with her new book, The Further Adventures of the Owl and the Pussycat, which is the continuation of the Edward Lear classic. We'll shortly hear Julia reading an extract from her book, but first... Here she is telling us what inspired her to write this story. Well, I've always been a great fan of Edward Lear, who wrote the, the poem The Adventures of the Owl and the Pussycat. And, but I'd never actually thought of writing a sequel myself until Puffin suggested it. And in fact, they sent me a lovely box with a lot of things which come into Edward Lear's poem, like uh, there was a a jar of honey, there was a runcible spoon, there was a ring, things like that. And that's just um, really uh, fired my imagination and, and I rose to the challenge. And who do you like best, the owl or the pussycat? Oh, that's a difficult one. <laughs> I've got... Um, yeah, I've always had cats. So I think I have to say the pussycat because I've always been a cat lover, but I am rather partial to owls as well actually and of course there is an owl and the gruffalo so difficult I think I'd just go for the pussycat. The owl and the pussycat is famous for its runcible spoon. Do you think it's important to introduce children to more complex language at an early age? Oh well I I don't really like the word important actually I just think it's such fun playing around with words um I wouldn't worry whether it's important or not. Just just do it. <laughs> OK, and you say it's fun playing around with words. Do you have a favourite word? Um, I think a lot of birds have wonderful names and I think I particularly like the word kittywake. And do you have a favourite rhyme? Actually, I do have one, which is by Edward Lear. It's not The Owl and the Pussycat. It's The Jumblies. That's really one of my favourite poems. Um, and of course, that's got lots of nonsense words in it. The Jumblies themselves. It's a, that's, that's such a wonderful word. That's what I really love about Edward Lear. All, you know, his incredible language. We love a nonsense word here at Puffin. So do you have a favourite book from your childhood? I didn't really have one favourite, but I did used to love the William books by Richmond Crompton about this um, quite dishevelled and um, rebellious 11-year-old boy called William. And I think it's about 30 books about him, and I used to collect them all from the second-hand bookshops near where I lived. And I still love the William books, and if I'm ever feeling really miserable, I still sometimes read one in bed to cheer myself up. The Further Adventures of the Owl and the Pussycat Written and read by Julia Donaldson The Owl and the Pussycat went to sleep by the light of the moon so pale. Their beautiful ring was tied with string in a bow round the pussycat's tail. They dreamed of mice and raspberry ice while slumbering cheek to cheek. But down flew a crow who unravelled the bow and flew off with the ring in his beak, his beak, his beak, 
and flew off with the ring in his beak. The owl and the pussycat woke next day to find that their ring had gone. They wept in the shade of the bong tree glade where never the sun had shone. The owl sang songs of terrible wrongs while puss blew her nose on a leaf. Then she said with a yowl, Oh, lugubrious owl, let us travel in search of the thief. The thief, the thief, let us travel in search of the thief. That was Julia Donaldson reading the opening of her latest book, The Further Adventures of the Owl and the Pussycat. But she's not the only author to muse on what happens to characters at the end of a book. Last year, Emma Thompson published The Further Tale of Peter Rabbit, where Peter Rabbit just couldn't stay out of Mr McGregor's garden. Here's an extract from the audiobook edition, read by Emma herself. I have not seen many rabbits moping, but when they do, their ears droop. Peter Rabbit was in low spirits. It had been a rainy summer, his blue coat had been torn by briars, and his shoes were hurting. What I need, he said, is a change of scene. Benjamin Bunny advised against it. Too many carts on the road, he said. Too many owls and too many foxes. Discouraged, Peter squeezed under the gate into Mr McGregor's garden, intending to steal a lettuce. What should he find by the greenhouse but an interesting basket smelling of onions? He opened it and climbed in. Inside, wrapped in brown paper, were some excellent sandwiches of cheese and pickle. He ate them all. It was cosy in the basket, so he fell asleep. That was an extract from The Further Tale of Peter Rabbit, read by Emma Thompson. And she'll be bringing Peter back this December in The Christmas Tale of Peter Rabbit where Peter will be going on another adventure with Benjamin Bunny and their friend William the Turkey. Now, from reimagined classics to the art of translation. Without talented translators, there would be a vast amount of books inaccessible for us to enjoy, and our next guest, Tom Holland, took on a great challenge, translating the histories of Herodotus. We'll hear him reading two short extracts from the book before he tells us how translating the histories came about. So, what the Scythians do is to take the seeds of a cannabis plant, crawl in under the blankets, and cast the seeds onto the glowing stones. As they hit the stones, the seeds flare as though they were incense, and emit a vapour so thick that no steam bath in Greece could possibly compete with it. The effect of this vapour on the Scythians is to make them howl with delight. It also serves them as the equivalent of a bath, since they never use water to wash themselves. That said, their women do blend water with a mixture of cypress, cedar and frankincense wood, which is pounded by them with a rough stone until a thick paste is formed, whereupon they plaster the paste all over their bodies and faces. Not only does this endow them with a delicious scent, but when they remove the plaster one day later, it leaves them cleansed and gleaming. So two of Xerxes' brothers fell in the battle, which raged furiously over the corpse of Leonidas, 
Persian against Lacedaemonian, until by sheer force of courage the Greeks managed to grab hold of the body and send their adversaries reeling back four times. This contest continued until the soldiers arrived with Ephialtes, at which point, as the Greeks became aware of their coming, the whole character of the fighting changed. The Greeks withdrew back past the wall to where the road was narrow, and there, all of them except for the Thebans, banded together and took up a position on a hillock. On this hillock, which was located in the entrance to the pass, where the stone lion commemorating Leonidas now stands, they defended themselves with daggers if they still had them, or else with their fists and teeth. Meanwhile, the barbarians buried them beneath a hail of missiles, pulling down the defensive wall and attacking them head-on, with those who had come round the mountain completing the encirclement. I've always been gripped by Herodotus ever since I was very young. Um, as a child, I was obsessed by um, Spartans and Athenians and Greeks and that kind of thing. Um, and so I realised that I had to read Herodotus. Um, it was the very first classic I, I ever read. Um, and I was gripped. And Herodotus has been a companion with me throughout my entire life. And like all great writers, he's someone who um, has evolved along with me so that the pleasure and the richness that I get out of the histories now um, has changed over time, but it remains just as gripping as it's ever been. And so the opportunity to translate it, um, to live with it in the incredibly intimate way that a translator does with a text was one that I, I sort of welcomed with open arms. You've done many things, and people would think of you as a novelist and a historian, and translator is something that you've come to later. What was the process for you in translating this? It was kind of like a, a sort of intellectual keep-fit regime because I, I would set myself the task of translating a certain chunk every day, rather like you do a sort of fitness regime. And... Um, and the wonderful thing about Herodotus is that um, he's divided up into books um, and then the books are divided up into paragraphs. And so I said to myself, I must translate at least one paragraph every day, come what may, whether I'm going on holiday, whether it's Christmas, whether it's um, bank holiday, whatever. And so I, I sort of kept to that. But of course, what, what made it um, slightly more interesting was the fact that some of the paragraphs are very, very short, so just one line. Um, and other paragraphs are very long. They can be sort of three or four pages. So if I did get a number of short paragraphs, I'd have to do quite a lot so that then I could sort of even it out when it came to doing the really long paragraphs. But it meant that 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 I was with, I was sort of living with Herodotus's prose um, and indeed, of course, with his character and his observations um, every day for about five years, I should think. And... The theme of the podcast this month is retelling stories, and I thought Herodotus was pertinent for that. And what is there in here that people need to read about and rediscover now? Well, what Herodotus tells us he's going to do in the very first line of the first work of history ever written is to explain how it was that the Greeks and the Persians came to war. And he's going to explain um, what it was that led them to it. And he's going to commemorate the achievements of both the Greeks and the Persians in this great conflict. And he does that. Um, and that is gripping enough. But what he also does is essentially to tell the greatest shaggy dog story ever told, because it takes him a very long time, actually, to get round to the thrilling narratives that people would probably be expecting, the stories of Marathon and Thermopylae and Salamis. Herodotus cannot see a detour without heading off down it. Um, and so if you're looking for um, a straight narrative, that can be quite frustrating. 
But if you're willing to surrender to a man who is one of the great storytellers of all time, you will find yourself being sucked into what I can only describe as a kind of the most enjoyable sort of narrative labyrinth. You never know what you're going to get around a certain corner. You might get an account of um, cats in ancient Egypt, or you might get a hideous story of um, a eunuch who gets his revenge on the man who had castrated himself, or you might get a laugh-out-loud story about a man who gets hilariously drunk in front of his prospective father-in-law and starts dancing on a table. You might get the account of how the Scythians take cannabis. You have no idea what you're going to get, and that is part of the excitement of it. And what you're getting, of course, as well as just stories, is a mirror that is being held up to the way the world existed two and a half thousand years ago. It's absolutely incomparably wonderful book to read. It is so enjoyable, so rich, um, and just so interesting. There seems to be something in the air at the moment with the Game of Thrones and 300 and everything else of people rediscovering this period and being really intrigued by it. Is that just a thing that comes around like fashion or do you think that there's something more pertinent in that that people are looking for now? Well, I think that one definition of a classic is that it can be reinterpreted by each generation and people have been reading Herodotus with pleasure for two and a half thousand years. Um, and so it's not surprising that we now, uh, when we look at him, find things that are relevant to us. Um, among them is the fact that we now live in a very globalised world where it's incumbent on us to try and make sense of cultures and peoples and beliefs that may ostensibly seem very alien to us. And Herodotus is trying to do the same. In fact, he's the pers first person we know of who makes that attempt. So in that sense, it's very moving. Um, and of course, also, we live in an age that is driven by information um, and by the increasing resources that we have available to us that explains how the world works. And again, fascinating to look at Herodotus in that light. But what essentially what he's trying to do is to create a kind of equivalent of Wikipedia for two and a half thousand years ago. And it's really the measure of his achievement that, that not only does he give us this panoramic sense of, of just about everything that is going on in the world in which he lives, but also that he is inventing the very notion of nonfiction. Anytime anyone Googles something, they are following in the footsteps of Herodotus because he is the first person who set out to try and represent the, the world in terms of what we can know about it. No one else had ever thought to do that before. And it, we, we take it so for granted that that's what people do, that it is, I think, invaluable to, to, to read the first person who attempted that. That was Tom Holland talking about translating the histories of Herodotus, which will be available on the 26th of September. Coming up, we have a discussion between two audiobook producers on how stories are retold and interpreted through audiobooks. Roy McMillan is Penguin's resident audiobooks producer, who has recorded and produced a phenomenal list of audiobooks, from Claire Balding's autobiography to the new Roald Dahl's children's stories, with the likes of Kate Winslet, Miranda Richardson, Derek Jacobi and Dan Stevens. Here he is, sharing his thoughts on what a reader brings to a book. In a sense, everything, because if you're listening to a book, that's the only access you have to the text, unless you happen to be studying the text at the same time. Uh, so what the reader does is bring you 
the narrator's voice, they bring you the character's voice, they bring you the tone of the book, they bring you the pace of the book, the feel of the book. They have to try and imbue their words with exactly the same sense of place and character that you would generate in your own imagination if you were just reading the book. The fact that you've got a reader doing it for you doesn't stop your imagination working. It's just that's what their job is, is to bring you the whole book. And as a single reader, they can only choose one interpretation that you hope works for a lot of listeners. So how do you go about choosing the right interpretation? Well, again, I, and I suppose I see them in much the same position as the author, really. You know, in the end, the author writes the book and, uh, you know, readers either like it or they are infuriated by it and hurl it across the room. And the same is true with reading. What you have to do is get a reader who you trust to bring their either their experience or their insight to bear on the text. The other thing they do have, of course, is it may seem an insanely obvious thing to say, but they have a voice and people respond to voices. It's a very intimate thing. We gauge people very much by the way they sound, as much as we do by the way that they might look. Um, and so what you hope a reader brings with their voices, perhaps elements of their personality, which you think add to the whole thing, as well as their range of particular skills. I mean, if you're doing a, I don't know, something like a wimpy kid, for example, obviously you want someone who can do that kind of cartoonish voice as well as carry the jokes. Um, whereas if you're doing, uh, you know, say, I don't know, Jane Austen uh, or Zadie Smith, you know, you have a different set of parameters that you're hoping to bring to, to bring into play. But in the end, they have the same kind of responsibility to the text and the reader as a book does in the same way that people think about design and font and so on. All of that is there to try and enhance and bring the text as, as accurately and truthfully to life as possible. How do you think the experience is different for listening to a book as from reading it? Uh, again, I'm, I'm tempted to be enormously obvious here, which is to do with tapping different parts of your imagination, I think, at least initially. But it is a different experience. One of the, one of the great things about listening to a book or hearing a book uh, is that you are able to escape in places where you can't do it in the same way that you do when you're reading. If you're reading a book, it has to be just you and the book. If you're listening to a book, you can be doing other things that would otherwise oblige you uh, to be paying attention to them. Um, and it allows you to engage your imagination at times when you might not otherwise do it. So in a sense, it gives you an extra way of, of, of accessing the book. But the other thing is also, I think, it, I think it, gives, it gives you a chance to approach works that you might not otherwise feel comfortable even imagining getting to grips with because you're being taken through or walked through something that might be off-putting or even alarming to consider. But you've got experience of this. It's, I mean, you're asking me the questions, but you're an audio producer as well. Have you, what's your feeling about the way that the process of listening changes your attitude to the written word? I think I'm much along the same lines as you in that there is a totally different experience when you're listening in that intimacy that you're listening to somebody with that tone of voice and the way that we react. It's so primal it's such an automatic reaction that warmth tone intonation we, we respond instinctively and as soon as you've got a, a trained actor and a really experienced reader taking that text and knowing how to very subtly guide you through that and all the emotional experiences it brings a completely different level to it so that's why I think in a way, as you say, you can actually use your imagination more when you're listening to a single voice. And I think accent is a big part of that as but, well. But it's also to do with the kind of immersive nature of it, isn't it? I mean, when you, in, in, if you go and see a film 
one of the one of the aspects about filmmaking that is most magical, it seems to me, is how completely you fall into the world that is created for you on the screen. And similarly, with a book, if you've got those, you know, those headphones on or it's on the on the speakers, whatever, you, the the voice, as you say, the, the the way it's expressed, just draws you in to the world of the book. And it's a very unique form as well, both in the way that we listen, but also for the readers. There's there's actually a very small set of actors who are fantastic audio readers and who really get it. I think some of the best readers let the book flow through them. They don't impose their ego or their personality on it. They've got to let the text come through them. And that's one of the core points about casting, is trying to find people who do exactly that, who know that their job is to... Apologies to everybody, but I'm going to step into the world of pretension. Uh, but it is their job to be a conduit for, uh, for the text. And there are different ways of doing that, uh, depending upon the nature of the book itself. And it's, it's all about making the book come to life in a way that is true to the text itself and which the reader brings to the text. When they are, on the one hand, they are being storytellers. Um, there is an interpretive element to it, uh, in which is why getting it right is so crucial. It's because you know, books matter to people and, these, and the, the audio versions of them have to have exactly the same respect for the text and for the listener as the written version does. Mm, absolutely. And I think there's really interesting ways that readers approach achieving that. And some will be a lot more physical than others in that they will move around a lot when they're reading. Please don't wear noisy cotton shirts. Just, you know. <laughs> we have in the studio here, we've got a spare T-shirt in case somebody turns up with a noisy shirt. The reading T-shirt. The reading T-shirt. Uh, just because you wouldn't believe just how, how loud cotton is. And tummy rumbles? Oh, don't even. There's nothing you can do about it. There is no, uh, bananas? No, no. It, it doesn't. <laughs> Usually works. No. Bananas, bananas, handy. bananas are handy, but they don't always work. They just don't, don't have too much water. People think, oh, I'll have some water. That gives your stomach something else to work on. If, you want, if you've got a bit of dry mouth, don't have water, take a little bite of an apple. It just gets the salivary glands going, so it stops that a little bit, which is good. But the stomach, stomach rumbles, that, you, know, you don't notice them at all until there's nothing else in a room except you and a microphone. Then it begins. And the trouble with them is that they're always they're just under the very end of a word. So you have to go back to the beginning of the sentence to start recording. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. This is rather this is perhaps a little bit too recherche in terms <laughs> of storytelling. But it is the case that it, it's, it's, it's a practical issue when you're recording a story that you don't want you don't want extraneous, which is which is and, the, and you know which is why there is such care taken in places like this over the recording. You want every sentence to work, to sound right, to feel right. Because it is it's so just so distracting if you have anything else, the slightest hesitation, external noise, anything, and you just absolutely want that pure experience. But also the interpretive one, you know. You, if, if, do you want to just 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 I didn't think the weight was quite right on that. You need to bring that down at the end of the sentence, then I think, because it's more of a closing moment, that kind of thing. There's so much of that. There's so much of that control of light and shade through the text, and I find the way that readers prepare really interesting because some of them will mark every single word in their script. It's like a music school of exactly where they're going to put the stress and the energy and so on. Others will come with a completely clean script and have it all in their heads, including exactly what every character sounds like. So from one to the other, it completely changes. But especially when you have a shift of pace and a shift of tone, which in really well-written books happens again on that very subtle level. And when you're working with a really good reader, they'll just know it exactly and find their way through the text it's a different format and there is a different experience and an audiobook is a different thing and it's 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 more 
it's a more extraordinary and miraculous thing to be able to turn that text into something that portable where you can have the book without having the book. It's extraordinary. That was our audiobooks producer, Roy McMillan, talking to Anna Lee about the audiobooks craft. This year at Penguin, we celebrated 20 years of audiobooks, and you can listen to extracts from our audiobooks on our SoundCloud page, www.soundcloud.com slash penguin-books. Before we reach the end of this episode, we have one final interview with Juliet Matthews, a Penguin Children's Publishing Director. To celebrate the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, Juliet asked 11 of the greatest children's authors to write 11 new Doctor Who short stories, one for every Doctor. Here she tells us why she thinks Doctor Who is suited to the short story form. Well, I think that the Doctor needs no introduction. I think generations... um not just the, the present generation, but parents uh, of the present generation uh, recognise the Doctor Who, know him. He's an iconic brand, which means that the author um, can jump straight into action, um, doesn't have to waste time in, in introducing the whole concept. But I think the key thing is that because the Doctor can travel to any period of time and uh, to any place, the author has a massive breadth of opportunity for storytelling. They can choose their favourite period of history or their fantasy future and they can set their story there. As one author put it, um, it was Rochelle Meads actually, she said that anything is possible um, and so she just thought, what can I do that I could never do in a conventional story? And so putting pterodactyls in Las Vegas seemed quite acceptable. Why do you think it was a good idea to revisit each Doctor in this way with a collection of 11 short stories, and why now? Um, the reason we're doing it now is because this year is the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, um, and the BBC have been celebrating um, all year, really. Uh, the celebrations are building up month by month, culminating uh, in a massive celebration in November, which is the actual 50th anniversary of the very first ap episode. Um, that fits in very neatly, 11 months, 11 doctors, um, and we just felt there was an absolute opportunity to revisit each doctor with a different author um, month by month. So we, again, we could build up our collection of stories, starting with doctor number one, um, finishing with doctor number 11 in November when we have the final anniversary episode. Um, so it, it just gave us a perfect opportunity to do something a bit different. Um, and it's a really nice way, particularly for the new generation of fans, to get to know the previous doctors. So sort of people like me and the parents might have their own favourite doctor, um, but the current fans may not be quite so familiar. So it, it's a fantastic way of introducing fans to um, the previous incarnations of the doctor, but through the interpretation of these fabulous authors that we've had. Can you tell us about how you chose authors for this project? Well, we have the most amazing lineup of authors and we are incredibly lucky. They are some of the finest and the most respected children's authors uh, and it's an absolute privilege to have worked with them. Um, they are all fans uh, of Doctor Who. Um, they all had their own favourite Doctor, so a lot of them are very keen to choose their own particular Doctor. Um, so they're either fans or, in Rochelle's um, case, her father was a huge fan. And actually, it's a really lovely story. He died last year, unfortunately, and this was something she felt that he would have loved. So she was very keen to, to, to write a Doctor Who story, um, I think, as a tribute to him. Um, we wanted to have a wide range of voices, 
authorial voices, but all of the writers um, have previously written fantasy adventure or have involved time travel in their own fiction or dystopian worlds. So they're all very familiar with the concept of time travel and fantasy, so they fitted the bill perfectly. What was the pull for the authors? Why were they so keen to write about the Doctor when they normally focus on characters they've created themselves? Well, obviously, as I said, because they're fans, um, and so they had massive fondness for the Doctor and it took them back to their childhoods. A lot of them said when we talked to them um, how they would love to travel back to their 11-year-old selves and tell themselves that they were going to be writing a Doctor Who story in the future because they would just be so excited. Um but also I think that they are so immersed in their own, um, the worlds that they have created, their own storytelling worlds, that this gave them a bit of a, a respite and a, a break and something different um, to do. They all talked about what a privilege it was to, um, to write for something that was so beloved and so well known and part of our, embedded in our entertainment culture. Uh, and they saw it as an opportunity to actually be part of that mythology. Um, it was a huge challenge for them because whilst they uh, had this massive opportunity to write in any period they liked and anywhere, they of course had to be true to the Doctor um, and they had to stick to the mythology that already existed. They had to be very aware of the characteristics of their particular Doctor. They had to work with the um, compa Doctor's companion of the time. So... There were restraints as, as to what they could write, but at the same time, there were huge opportunities. So I think they took that as, uh, as a challenge. Um, what has been the best part of this project for you? Well, clearly working with such an amazing array of writers. I mean, it has been an absolute privilege. And it's been really exciting each month to see um, how uh, they've all brought their own spin to this kind of iconic, story that we that we know it's just been incredibly exciting to see what different stories uh, and what depth can be given to um, an existing classic brand so it's just it's just been fabulous that was Juliet Matthews publishing director in Penguin Children's talking about the new Doctor Who short stories nine out of the 11 stories are already available as ebooks with the final two being released in October and November it does sound like the authors had fun putting their favourite Doctor into the very strange and bizarre. Pterodactyls in Las Vegas? Why not? Well, that's it from the Penguin Podcast. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them to podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find us on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.